Welcome to Scope It Out. In this edition, guest host Dr. Sarah Wise talks with Dr. Carol Yan and Dr. Zara Patel about their recent article, Use of Platelet-Rich Plasma for COVID-19-Related Olfactory Loss, a Randomized Controlled Trial. Welcome to this edition of Scope It Out, the official podcast of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology. I'm your host for this episode, Dr. Sarah Wise from Atlanta, Georgia. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Carol Yan from the University of California, San Diego, and Dr. Zara Patel from Stanford University. We'll be discussing their recent IFAR publication, Use of Platelet-Rich Plasma for COVID-19-Related Olfactory Loss, a Randomized Controlled Trial. Welcome, Carol and Zara, and congratulations to you and your co-authors on the paper. Thank you so much for having us here, Sarah. It's a pleasure. Excited to be here. Thanks. So we're all pretty familiar with smell loss as a symptom of COVID-19. Now I'd like to lean on you, our true olfaction experts, since we have you both here today. Initially, could you all tell us what your standard workup and treatment regimen for presumed post-viral smell loss is? Sure, I can jump in on that one. Before starting any treatment, of course, you want to make sure that the diagnosis is correct. And it's pretty easy usually with a COVID-19 related smell loss. Um, it's, it is associated with their known COVID uh, infection. Some patients you know, will guess at whether they have it. For this particular study, we needed proof of COVID-19 infection, but um, certainly what we use what we were using before this study to treat COVID-related smell loss is based on our studies and, and data from prior to the pandemic for other post-viral smell losses, which would include things like olfactory training, which is just a structured smelling protocol that can hopefully retrain people to be able to smell again, get their, their olfactory nerves and bulbs and cortex working in the correct way again, combined with a high volume steroid irrigation. That's based on a randomized control trial I had done again pre-pandemic showing that in other post-viral and idiopathic smell losses that improved the efficacy of olfactory training versus just training on its own. Those are the mainstays. There are other things that I'll sometimes mention to patients such as omega-3 based on a study um, that we did looking at skull-based patients and helping them. And there are other types of uh, things that people will sometimes ask about that have lower level evidence, um, which may or may not be helpful. And what about any um, workup in this type of situation when the diagnosis of COVID is pretty obvious, but sometimes may not be as obvious for other sort of post-viral losses? Do you do any imaging or laboratory workup normally for um, when you think that post-viral smell loss is, is your number one diagnosis? I would say in my hands, when there's a very specific history of a viral event that occurred, um, they were symptomatic with a cold or a flu-like symptoms, immediately thereafter they lost their smell, there's no need for any further imaging or lab workup in my mind. Now, if someone does not have a good history and they can't point to anything, instead of assuming that they had a viral event, that may be a time when you perhaps move forward with some imaging. Awesome. I agree. And I think, you know, pre-COVID, a lot of times we're seeing the patients not so soon after their viral infection, or it is uh, otherwise kind of assumed 
that there was no other etiology. They just can't think of why they potentially lost their sense of smell, but it could have happened like a year ago or two years ago. And in that case, then I would um, proceed with some imaging and make sure the endoscopy and then talk to them if they can recollect any type of URI at that time. But often it's a diagnosis of exclusion almost at that point. You can ask if it's truly post-viral versus idiopathic. And these are cases that we see like, you know, two plus years after the past math. Yeah, I agree. Sometimes those um, ones that present a little bit later can be a little more challenging when you don't have the obvious viral history. Let's move on now to the impetus for the work in this particular paper. Why investigate platelet-rich plasma? What does this intervention potentially offer beyond some of the more routine treatments for post-viral olfactory loss or COVID in particular? Yeah, so I, I first became interested in PRP long before the pandemic. <laughs> As Carol will remember, we ran this pilot study before the pandemic to see um, whether or not it could have any, well, really to see if it was feasible and safe in, in olfactory loss patients. When I first began reading about PRP, it was in other medical fields. That's actually what gives me ideas quite a lot of the time for what to study next in olfactory loss patients. I look, I read the neurology literature because this is really a nerve dysfunction type of problem that we're dealing with. And so there are really interesting things going on in neurology for nerve regeneration and bringing back nerve function. And, you know, PRP is used in orthopedics to inject joints for people with mild arthritis to hopefully regenerate cartilage. It's used in aesthetics for the doing facials. If you've heard of the vampire facial, that's that. It's used to inject the scalp to regrow hair. It's used in all sorts of different medical fields. But what caught my interest is a study from the neurologic literature looking at carpal tunnel syndrome, where a three-arm study had surgery, PRP injection versus like medical physical therapy. And the injection was just as effective as surgery for a carpal tunnel. And so I thought, wow, maybe there really is something to this. It's not just one of those hooey things that seems to help everything, but doesn't really do anything. So I wanted to see, is this feasible to actually inject in people's olfactory clefts high and deep in that nasal cavity area? And is it safe? I certainly wouldn't want to make anyone worse. I certainly wouldn't want to start growing a tumor, things like that, that you have to think about when you think about growth factors. Um, because that's really the idea behind PRP is that it has this supraphysiologic concentration of growth factors, which tissue throughout our bodies use to regenerate. In that pilot study, it was just a very small number of patients, and we did show that it was safe and feasible. There was an interesting enough uh, change in those patients' threshold that while you could not conclude anything about efficacy from a pilot study of small number, it did prompt me to want to run a randomized controlled trial. And then the pandemic hit. And so we changed it to a COVID specific randomized controlled trial for Sonoma. So that's, that was the idea behind why we started this study. That's an interesting progression. And, and, um, I certainly appreciate kind of gleaning things from other specialties and really sort of learning what's been effective in, you know, treatments for other conditions and then kind of figuring out how we can use that in our specialty. Um, so that's fantastic. So Carol, maybe you could give us a brief description of the patients that you recruited for the study who could or, or could not participate. Yeah, definitely. So as I mentioned, this is a randomized controlled study and 
we really felt like that was an important part of making this a, a good study because as we know with COVID, there are so many patients who present with smell loss but have a really high rate of spontaneous recovery. So uh, in this study, we recruited patients both from Stanford and UCSD who presented with a known COVID-related infection. So they were PCR confirmed positive for COVID. And they had, importantly, at least six months of smell loss. And this was objectively tested or uh, quantified by the UPSIT. So we actually screened patients who had at least six months of smell loss, were tested with an UPSIT that showed smell dysfunction, and then further had tried other therapies, as I mentioned previously, that were considered potentially standard of care for post-viral smell loss. And that included smell training, as well as high volume steroid irrigations like budesonide. And so with all that being said, if they were still um, having smell dysfunction, then they were eligible for our study. And so we recruited 35 subjects originally, and then 26 of which completed the study. And they were randomized on a one-to-one scale to either receive, again, blinded placebo saline injections in the olfactory cleft versus PRP. And they were able to commit to three injections that were taking place every two weeks, and then a three-month follow-up in terms of smell testing. And when we actually tested their smell for the study, we actually used sniff and sticks, which is most people know a longer, more component part of smell testing that tests smell threshold uh, discrimination and identification. So just a little bit of more nuanced information in terms of how their smell is doing. So kind of the gist of the study, generally they were healthy patients who had covid and, and weren't hospitalized. I think our median or uh, mean age were was in the 40s, I believe. Male and females were equally enrolled as well, interestingly. Excellent. So they came in and they had their initial smell test and then underwent the three injections separated by two weeks, you said, of either the saline placebo or the PRP, and then had subsequent smell testing up to three months. So what did you find? What were your outcomes? Could PRP be a promising treatment for COVID-related hyposmia? What we found is, and so 26 patients completed this study, 14 of which received PRP, and then 12 of which received placebo or saline injections. And our primary outcome was changes in the sniff and sticks score. And what we found was in terms of at one month and three months, specifically looking at the longer term uh, outcome, the three months that the PRP group had a almost four point difference in terms of improvement over the saline injection, and that was statistically significant. And then looking at actually the MCID of the SNF and six, which is kind of the minimal clinically important identifiable difference and seeing that the PRP arm, um, about 57% of the patients achieved that MCID criteria versus 8% in the saline. This was kind of demonstrating that there is a higher likelihood of a treatment with PRP improving your clinical sense of smell compared to placebo and getting a higher response rate and MCID. When we look at SNF and six, we actually found of the subcategories, discrimination of smell also was the biggest difference between the PRP arm and the placebo. And that that change in MCID is really the most impressive part of our results to me, because, you know, when you're thinking about these tests and um, looking at particular numbers that are different, 
it's hard to really know what that means. And I'm so glad that others have done research before us to show, you know, when you're looking at those numbers, what would actually be clinically important, what would actually show a clinically important difference. And so we were able to use that data to really judge how effective is this, not just statistically speaking, but clinically. And so that was one of the the great outcomes of this study for me. Yeah, I agree. I I thought that was particularly noticeable as well. And so speaking of clinically important. Are you now using this in your patients regularly? So now that we have the results of this study, I have opened this up as a treatment option for all of my smell loss patients. I tell my COVID-19 patients specifically that, you know, this is the data and, and that pertains to you specifically. I also tell my other smell loss patients about the study because We're really just on the beginning horizon of research into this particular area. We really have no idea. I chose the protocol of the study based on just, you know, in other fields, what types of protocols have been made. But do we know that three injections is the right amount of injections? Do we know that separating them by two weeks each is the exact right time to separate? We're just right now beginning to, you know, uh, research this. And so I think that I'm telling everyone about it. I let people that are not uh, post-viral patients know, even though it would be an extrapolation to other patient populations. But as you are very well aware, people with smell loss are desperate for some type of intervention that could potentially help them. And so I am telling everybody about it and offering it to patients. On that note, I'd like to kind of think about additional aspects that sort of step outside of the strict confines of the study. For example, parosmia or phantosmia, we've seen a lot of COVID-19 patients that, you know, come in with these complaints of smell distortions or phantom smells and things like that. Is there any potential role for PRP in treating these patients? You kind of allude to these aspects a little bit in the paper, but I'd like to hear your thoughts and predictions a little bit more. Sure. I'll start. And Carol, please add any information you have from your patients. Uh, So in the study itself, looking at change in parosmia or phantosmia was not an outcome. So we, we were not specifically measuring that. However, we did talk to our patients, obviously, Um, when patients had parosmia, it did not seem to significantly change over the course of this study. Now, I will tell you an anecdote of a patient that now that the study is done and I'm offering this injection to to everyone, there is a one particular patient that comes to mind that she has smell loss from COVID-19, but her overriding factor that is impacting her quality of life is the parosmia, extreme distortion of smell. And so when she first came to me, that was her main complaint. It was really only after testing her that she really realized that she had a a significant loss as well. The distortion is really what was overwhelmingly her complaint. Now we talked about, again, the fact that this PRP study really only seemed to help with the loss and it didn't seem to change parosmia and the, the patients that we studied in the trial, but she wanted to try it anyway. And I can tell you that after just two, at, at our third visit for her third injection, she was in tears, so joyful that her parosmia, her distortion that had been impacting her for over a year before she came to see me was almost completely gone. I don't know why that one particular patient may have a significant benefit from it versus all those patients in our trial that didn't seem to have much 
And I think that we really don't really know who are the exact patients that are going to benefit from this PRP injection and in what ways are they going to benefit. And so much probably has to do with the exact mechanism of injury in each of these patients and and whether or not PRP can ameliorate those specific injury mechanisms. And so I think that really it's early days and the short answer is we don't know if it'll help people like that, but I certainly will continue to test all of my patients with parosmia. Many of them do have loss also. And so I will certainly offer it to patients with loss. Carol, any yeah. additional thoughts on things kind of that offshoot a little bit from the study itself, other post-viral losses or other aspects of smell that you might find PRP could potentially be helpful for? Yeah. I mean, I think all these were um, great points. I tell my patients now that the study had a statistical difference. It achieved an MCID difference. I think a couple things importantly is that when they look at the study, they'll notice that subjectively we also used a visual analog score, a VAS, and there was no difference between PRP and placebo. But there is still, it may not have reached statistical significance, I should add, but there was still an improvement in PRP group versus the placebo group. And so I think it just shows that this study has promising results. The overall population N is still quite small. And so I think it's still really helpful to expand on it and get better, larger studies to come out of this. In terms of parosmia, I haven't found this like amazing story of a patient really benefiting from parosmia, to be honest, after PRP. Some have improved and some have not. I think really importantly, though, is that it didn't worsen anyone's parosmia. In fact, it didn't worsen anyone's smell either. So overall, PRP is probably not for everyone. The improvements we did see were superior to placebo, but importantly, no one actually had worsening kind of sense of smell, worsening parosmia. And so I, I think it's an added potential that, you know, of a treatment that wasn't there. I try to tell people and sell it that it's not like a magic cure. Like they should not come in expecting one injection. <laughs> they're going to wake up the next morning and like their entire sense of smell is back to normal, not realistic, and probably was not going to be the PRP uh, in the first place. You know, it's actually interesting. We have some preclinical data looking at COVID long hauler tissue, and there's a study coming out that's led by Brad Goldstein that actually shows that these COVID patients, why they're having persistent smell loss may be related to persistent inflammation in the olfactory epithelium that's potentially T-cell driven. It basically enforces why PRP might work is that, you know, it not only has neuroregenerative properties, but has a lot of anti-inflammatory properties. So I think that kind of added data kind of helps justify our study a little bit more and gives me like hope to continue to use it with patients. And I would just add that we powered the study based on that pilot of pre-pandemic post-viral and idiopathic loss. And what we've seen with COVID-19, and one of the really interesting things in the study is how much spontaneous improvement can occur even after six months in COVID-19 patients. I would say if we had more numbers, um, we may see even more of a, a difference, I would say, because the spontaneous rate is so high. But as Carol said, you know, I think that the most important thing is to make sure your patients know it's not a magic bullet or a magic wand where one day you can't smell and the next day you can. It's another incremental, significant, statistically and clinically significant improvement over what we already have and are already offering people. But 
again, there's more work to be done, more research to be done. And so we will keep doing it. Yeah. Speaking of that, what's next on the horizon? I feel like you guys are are always pushing the boundaries of olfactory research. So what's coming next? I can pipe up and then Carol can say what she's up to, too. So one thing that we're currently putting through the IRB right now, so I have not started enrollment yet, but hope to sometime soon, is a study specifically directed at COVID-related parosmia, because as we just talked about, it's one of the most impactful sequelae of having had some sort of smell dysfunction with COVID. And the study is basically going to be looking at neuromodulating agents, so things like Lyrica, gabapentin, those types of medications. Because anecdotally, in the past, you know, dating back to Don Leopold and others that have gone before us, Dick Doty, people have used these neuromodulating agents for post-viral parosmia with some effect. Not everyone has improved. And I can tell you just empirically from my last decade of treating patients with smell problems. Some people will definitely have improvement with neuromodulator treatment with parosmia and others won't have any sort of effect at all. And so I think it's another question of which is the right patient population? Is it the timing dependent type of response? But Doyan Cho just presented recently at our last meeting, and I think just published as well, his small series just showing that a low-dose gabapentin can help COVID-related parosmia. And that's in line with what we've known for many years that some patients will respond to it. Now, I think that, again, without a randomized controlled trial, you really can't make any conclusions about efficacy. And so that's my next step. Excellent. Carol, anything else to add? I I totally agree with the randomized controlled trial. I've always been tempted by doing a randomized controlled trial with the Stella Ganglion block. It's all over social media. And I get patients knocking on the door, asking about it all the time. And I know they've started a single arm study at WashU already. I'm still kind of deliberating the ideas, but um, we do have the resources and the personnel to do it at UCSD. And I personally am kind of dying to know, does it work or not? I just can't understand as like a, on the science side, why or how it could help with parosmia, but you just hear about it. And that's the thing about these smell treatments is that there's so much non-scientific <laughs> reports about quote-unquote treatments and magic cures and the patients are paying a lot of money out of pocket to go to these pain specialists to get the stale like ganglion box that cures them with their parosmia instantly and so I'm not gonna lie I'm like thinking about it really hard to decide if we should do this randomized controlled trial and kind of see if this make sense or not. And if we did, it would be a crossover study, actually. Um, And it would probably be double blinded. And that's kind of something I'm thinking about. But my other efforts are kind of on the preclinical side, the translational studies. So I work with like a mouse model doing influenza infections and kind of seeing on a molecular level what's going on after they get infections. And it seems to have just kind of signaling pathways very similar to COVID-related smell loss as well. So that's hopefully applicable for our patients. And then who knows, like, I think it would be interesting to pursue kind of the mechanisms behind PRP, because that's what we're going to get asked a lot too, is <laughs> why does PRP work? And um, and so far, the kind of research behind that has been pretty limited. So I might be starting to do that with mice as well. That would be super interesting, Carol. And I, I would love for you to do that silly ganglion study. <laughs> You know, when I, when people ask me about it, I say, you know, what cellulite ganglion block thus far has been used for is people with PTSD, people mm-hmm. with anxiety, 
And so I can completely understand that by affecting your autonomic baseline, that you can make people not care about their parasia. I think that may be the mechanism behind why people are really happy with their results. But I'm really interested and I and I hope that when you do that study, you formulate the questions and your like outcomes so that you can tell the difference between those things because not caring about it and actually having a change in it, that will be a very different outcome. Still maybe a really significant thing to make people not care about their parosmia. You know, like that's not an outcome we should dismiss. Maybe that's really what we should be trying for. But I think that the difference is important. And then I'll just I'll just throw out one last thing that I think I've talked about before with you, Sarah, but my long term, I guess, also preclinical type of study right now is with electrical recording and stimulation of the olfactory epithelium. And that is a long ways away from actually bringing it into the clinical scenario and being able to treat patients. But There is a lot of data that suggests stimulation, electrical field stimulation and direct nerve stimulation can help with nerve regeneration. We've seen it in peripheral nerves. We see it in deep brain stimulation. We see it in all aspects of neurology and neurosurgery. And so I think it's really the best next area to investigate in olfaction. And so I have a patent through Stanford and I'm just hoping to have the time in the next year to be able to develop that further. Well, this has been an extraordinary discussion. Thank you all so much for joining me, Zara and Carol. I'd really encourage our listeners to download the manuscript, read it. It's truly interesting work. And we really thank you all for pushing this field forward. And congratulations to all of your colleagues as well on your publication. And thank you, of course, to our Scope It Out listeners. This is Sarah Wise for Scope It Out, the official podcast of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology. I'm signing off for now. Until next time. Thanks for listening. Scope It Out is a co-production of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology and Wiley. All opinions in this podcast are those of podcast hosts and guests and do not necessarily reflect those of Wiley or the sponsors. 